Well, this uh, summer when Trish and I were traveling, uh, we were in Pennsylvania, and uh, some of you know I'm a Frank Lloyd Wright fan, so we went to see his famous house, Falling Water. And as we were making our way towards uh, that part of the country, uh, we started encountering in yard after yard after yard these signs that had the Ten Commandments on them. And I mean, we just found it very interesting. It was like some people were evidently trying to say, these need a comeback. Uh, they, they, they're important. Let's, let's still keep them out where they can be seen by other people in public. And I don't, I don't know what transpired behind all that, but it just it fascinated me. I saw the Ten Commandments and I thought, wow, we're going to be talking about that this fall. And uh, it's interesting how some people approach this. Uh, some of you know that 10 years ago we taught on the Ten Commandments. And I remember thinking then, wow, there is just something about uh, these words that just, there's so much more to them than we can possibly capture even on any given Sunday. But there's something about the Ten Commandments. And the question, as you look at the notes this morning, uh, if you would, is this. How well do we know the Ten Commandments? How well do we know? And I don't know about you, but I enjoy laughing at someone else's expense there in the video, don't you? I mean, when they were asked, they, they, they were real honest. They knew only a few. And, and the point is, is that we cannot be deeply influenced by something we don't know. And yet in the United States, a lot of people have said that they believe that the Ten Commandments are binding, it's just they don't know very many of them. So it's one of those things where in the church, it's possible for those of us that even may know them by memory, not to know them by heart. And even if I've already, God shown me stuff before, I still have a lot to learn. So we want to find out, we want to spend the next 11 weeks just talking about the Ten. And that's what we've called this series and so here's, here's what I want you to see about the Ten Commandments. I want you to see how relational they are. The first four are about loving God. And if you're following along, the, second, the last six are about loving others. So they're about loving God and loving others, reverencing God, respecting others. It has to do with our vertical relationship as well as our horizontal relationship. And even if you've never, ever seen the Ten Commandments before, that's okay. I'm glad you're here. Or maybe you've studied them in depth. But across that whole range, I hope that in the next couple months, we're going to just discover a whole bunch more than we know right now. Now, I know some people have said, you know, I've never read the book. I've never read the Ten Commandments, but I've seen the movie. You know what I'm talking about? And some of you know, like the guy said in the video, that there's a movie called The Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. So you've seen this picture before, probably, uh, where he came down. And what was he carrying, friends? What were the Ten Commandments written on? Stone tablets. Two stone tablets. Now, a lot of us that like to have everything neat and clean and orderly picture the first five commandments being on the first tablet and the last five commandments being on the second tablet. But I want to just mess with your minds a little bit and tell you that probably what actually happened is the first four were on the first tablet and the last six were on the second tablet because they were to show that if you're going to understand life, it's about first our relationship with God and then our relationship with others. And if you, uh, here's another way to see it. In fact, I, I was able to get the original stone tablets. You can see <laughs> it's in English and... Roman numerals and things like that before they were even created. But anyway, I, I'm sure that's not how they look, but it helps us see that one through four, 
5 through 10. And uh, so what I want you to do is if you turn your notes over to the back side, you'll see we've listed the first line of the Ten Commandments. And again, uh, you'll see that in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, that's where you can find these Ten Commandments. And uh, what I want to just ask you to do, if you'd be willing to do this with me, is I want to invite you to stand up, and I'd like for us to read all ten so that none of us leave today without at least being introduced to the Ten Commandments. So would you mind standing? And we're going to read this in full voice, and I'll say First Commandment, and then if you'll read the words with me in italics. Here we go. The First Commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The Second Commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. The third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. The sixth commandment. You shall not murder. The seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. The eighth commandment. You shall not steal. The ninth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, again, on the front of the notes there, what I want to talk to you about this morning is that in order to teach on the Ten Commandments, a lot of us have at least some initial resistance. We, um, we, we don't always say it out loud, but we don't like being told what to do. We don't like to have someone command us. We uh, take great pride in our liberty, our freedom, and our ability to decide what we think's best. And it's possible for every person to do what's right in their own eyes rather than what God says. And as I list in the bulletin column, why are we doing this series? In part, because of ignorance. I mean, again, we can't be influenced by what we don't know, and so part of it is we want to just we just want to get better acquainted with this so it might be able to influence our lives more deeply. But also, as I list in the bulletin column, relativism. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but there's no longer absolutes in a lot of people's minds anymore. So, for instance, when you talk about the Bible, people go, well, that's, that's old. I'm modern. Now, this no longer speaks to my life, or it's out of date, or it's right about some things, but it's wrong about a lot of things. And so there's this whole attitude that we may come to with this. And we may even say, you know, I don't even know if the Ten Commandments apply anymore. One thing I would say about that, by the way, is that Jesus upholds the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. So we see that God's relational moral law continues to be upheld. It's not something that he just chose out of the air. These are universal laws that are true whether we believe them or not. But there's also the whole idea that we live in a time, I don't know if you feel this, but I feel like we're losing our moral compass. And there's a sense of clarity that they at least introduce to us that we have to at least grapple with. But here's the biggest reason, and it's listed in your notes there. Here's the sentence for this whole series called 10, is that God's boundary lines are a gift, and honoring them leads to greater freedom. God's boundary lines are a gift, and honoring them leads to greater freedom. And uh, we almost named this series, instead of 10, we almost named it 10 Gifts. Because we we realize these 10 commandments are so helpful, they are so precious, if we understand them correctly, 
that they can be a blessing to us. They can actually lead to greater freedom. Not, they're not straitjackets. They they're not given to us to take away our freedom. They're, they're given to maximize our lives. Now, you may say, like, well, what do you mean? Years ago, James Dobson gave an illustration of this. He said, you know, nowadays, progressive education, ed- educators have said that the best way for people to learn is to take away all limits, all restraints. So what they did, they decided to experiment with this, and they went to some elementary schools and some nursery schools, and they removed all of the chain-link fences around the playgrounds. Because they thought, you know, that's just making kids feel hemmed in, you know? That, you know they want to play free. They wanna... So when they did that, they came up with a surprising discovery. They didn't expect this. The children, instead of playing all the way out to the edges, all huddled in the center of the playground. You see, just like children, all of us, in order for us to really flourish, we need to know where the lines are. And once we do, then we can live all the way out to the edges of life. And there's way more freedom when we have a sense of God's boundary lines. And so, I don't know if you heard the words of the opening song today. I wrote them down in my notes. These words, I'm beginning to see these boundary lines were meant for me. So I could find all these treasures hidden in a holy God. And I, these boundary lines, I'm beginning to see these boundary lines were meant for me. I don't know where you're at as you enter today and you come into this room and we think about the Ten Commandments, but I hope that as time goes on in this series, you'll say, I'm beginning to realize these boundary lines were meant for me and that God gave them not to take away my freedom, but to help me live with greater freedom. So what I want to do, if you're following along, is that I want us to understand God's boundary lines today and just talk about what, what do they mean, and then especially pay attention to number one, the first commandment, and also talk about ways that we can honor God's boundary lines. So in order to do that, uh, would you mind just praying with me, please, as we start? Now, Lord, I know that, again, uh, when I... I sometimes have heard some of these things. I put up a certain defense, and I want to protect what I believe is my freedom. And so I know that uh, this morning as we look at these, all of us come with different ideas and maybe reservations. And I just would ask that you would be our teacher. Thank you that you care enough about us to give us boundary lines that are helpful to us rather than just hinder us. And I pray that we'll see your wisdom in these words. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so um, I was going to ask you to open your Bibles to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, and I'm going to mainly be referencing it today. Sometimes we walk through whole sections, but today I'm going to mainly be referencing it because I want to really focus in as we're doing an overview of all 10 plus focusing in on number one. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can pull out one of the black ones there. It's on page 52. It says NIV on the end, you can just pull it out. Page 52, it'll turn to Exodus 20. If you're getting used to your Bibles, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and so it won't take long to find it. It's near the front. And uh, we're going to talk about verses 1 through 3. Now, I need to tell you that I made a mistake on the notes. So some of you are going to have these words, therefore Jesus told them instead of, and God spoke all these words. And that's my mistake. And uh, I apologize for messing with scripture. But anyway, in a gray box there, after the, I say, and God spoke all these words, would you read with me uh, what happens in the quotation marks? Because it is the same in all your notes. Here we go. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, 
out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, again, if you were to take time to look at chapter 19, you would see the context in which these were given. And I so appreciate what Brian Schwarberg and Brian Schwartz did to help us think about what happened when these were given. But notice this, if you're following along in the notes, notice the author and when the ten are given. Notice the author of the Ten Commandments and when these ten are given, because that's important to understand. First of all, let's talk about the author of the Ten Commandments. Just shoot straight with you. A lot of times what we do is we whittle God down to our size. When we think about God, we actually think he's like us. As Blaise Pascal said, God created man in his own image, and man returned the favor. What happened is, is we actually think God is like us. And if you read chapter 19, and you heard what Brian Schwartz said, you know that when God showed up to deliver the Ten Commandments, oh my goodness, even the cockiest person in the room got humble. Because they realized, oh my goodness, God is not like me. He is awesome and he is great. And just being in his uneclipsed presence. Friends, the Bible says every one of us one day will stand and give an account in his presence. And I'll tell you what, on that day, anybody here on earth that's been going around, well, I think, none of that cockiness is going to fly. Not because God's trying to make it go away, but because people are going to realize I am dealing with someone so much greater than myself. And God is the author of the Ten Commandments, and so it'd be easy to go, wow, he's awesome in power, therefore he's even more distant from me. But what I want you to see is that he also said, as we heard earlier, he said, look, Moses, go tell them, before I deliver the Ten Commandments, remember how I carried you on eagle's wings. Remember how I delivered you from slavery. Remember how I care about you, so that you won't just hear these as rules to take away your life, but rules because I care about your life and understand that they're relational and I want your life to work at a maximum level. I don't want you to miss out. And so this is incredible, but notice also when he gave them. He gave them after he had set them free. Not so that they would be accepted, but after they already had been accepted by him. Friends, we already talked about this in Galatians. We do not obey, if we're obeying correctly, we do not obey with the idea that if we obey, God will accept us. In Jesus Christ, for those of us that have acknowledged that we have all turned and gone our own way, that we have all sinned against God and deserve to be separated from him, if we acknowledge and admit that and then put our trust in Christ and look to what Christ has done for us on the cross in our place, the Bible says is that at that moment, we are accepted in God based on what he has done for us already. And therefore, now, the reason we obey is out of a heart of love, out of a heart of gratitude, not to be accepted by God. We already are accepted. They already were his people. And he said, look, I want to make you a kind of people that you can know life much more fully than you would. So just notice that context. But the second thing I want you to notice is what the first commandment is. So let's dig right in as far as what that is. If you're following along, here's, the, here's just... That Cliff notes, no other gods before me or besides me. No other gods before me or besides me. Remember, if you look at, at, at the Ten Commandments, and by the way, I forgot to tell you this, but if you look at the back, you'll see that it just says, uh, no, you, know, you shall have no other gods before me. Here's what I was going to suggest earlier, and I forgot. 
you may want to just draw a line between the fourth and the fifth commandment, and in the left margin there, put God above the, the line, and then below the line, put others. But again, the first commandment now, we're talking about the first tablet, is you shall have no other gods before me. It's also translated besides me. Now, I want to just ask you a question. When you hear this, does it make you wonder if God is insecure? Does it make you wonder if God is arrogant and thinks that he is God? Because, I mean, again, some people just go, well, sure he's going to say that. And the reason he's saying it is just because, you know, he doesn't want us to, you know, really know life. But the truth is, it's possible that he knows something about us. But the question is, what are gods? You know, I don't know if you've ever, you know, places like India, they worship millions of gods. Places like the United States now, we pride ourselves in being able to say, every, every different god is equal. All these different gods, it's okay. Whatever god you worship, that's okay. You know, and the question on the table is, is it? The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. So what is, he, what is he getting at? What's a God? If you're following along in the notes, a God is anything I trust in, cling to, or look to for life. A God is anything I trust in, cling to, or look to for life. Another way to say it is whatever I order my life around, whatever has my heart. So therefore, you know, whatever, what has my time, my attention, my energy, what am I giving that to? And uh, a God can be anything or anyone. And it can be good things. The truth is, is that gods are anything that try and take the place of God. And so, is it, you know, what are, what are some of the gods? In our culture, the big three that a lot of people talk about are money, sex, and power. Here's a question. Is money wrong? No. Is sex wrong in its proper context? No. Is power wrong? No, not when it's used correctly. But they can become gods. When I was in high school, I've told you before, I learned that one of the gods in my life was my girlfriend. God had shown me clearly that I, had a, I, did, I was putting her in a more important place in my life Thing. God, well, I'm not talking about my wife now, by the way. I met in high school. But I'm talking about the fact that you can have a person. You, your own children can become your gods. Your spouse can become your god, your family members. Are, and is there anything wrong with family members? No. Are we supposed to love and treasure them and value them? Absolutely. But is it possible for them to become a god in our life? When I was a kid, my dad and mom had lots of discussions about how my dad's work was becoming his god. And he talked honestly about that. And you know what? That's especially tricky. You know what my dad's work was? He was a pastor. Is it possible for ministry to become a God? Oh, yeah. Approval, position, pleasure, comfort, security. I mean, you fill it in. Anything, even good things that God's created. And here's the thing. Everything that God has created can become a God. Everything. And therefore, it can take the primary place in our life. And so when we think about it, Mark Batterson's given some helpful questions. He says, here's four ideas about maybe how to wrestle with whether or not you have a God. So the first one is, what do you think about 
What do you daydream about, he says. Where does your mind keep going to? Where do you find your mind just keeps going back to a lot? Because that, that's probably a sign that that's, that's your God or possibility of becoming one. So the second thing is, what bad habits do you find keep surfacing in your life? What addictions? So there's a very good chance the reason why you're ordering your life around that is because it's becoming a God in your life if it isn't already. He says the other thing is, uh, third thing is, what, what are you spending your money on? You know, if we were to look at your checkbook or your credit card statements, or look or see where the cash goes out of your hand, there might be a trail there that leads to something that's out of place or out of proportion in your life. It's become a God. And he said, the last thing is, what do you get emotionally revved up about or emotionally attached to that if it was taken away from you, you could not imagine surviving? There's a chance that may be a God in your life or mine when we see those things happening. And so I, I just find that very helpful. But so the, the question on the table is, he says, no other gods before me or besides me. What's, what's he getting at? If you're following along, why does he say that? And what's, just question. Let's just, you ask this question, I'm sure. What's so bad about that? What's wrong with that? Where does that lead? What's the, I, mean, I don't think it's a big deal. Is it? You may wonder all those things. And here's what the Bible indicates are some of the answers. I'm just going to give you a couple this morning. The first, uh, the, the line there is, because other gods twist our true design and will perish. Because anything else that we trust in, cling to, or look to for life besides the Lord God alone will twist our true design and will perish. Look at Jeremiah 10, 11, if you would. Say to those, God says, to those who worship other gods, your so-called gods who did not make the heavens and the earth like I did will perish and vanish from the earth and from under the heavens. What's this mean translated? This means that if you and I say, you know, I, don't, I think God's bluffing. I don't think he knows what he's talking about. And you hold on to something it means that eventually it's going to vanish or perish or you're going to lose it or it's not going to come through for you. Therefore, he's saying it's just not even a good investment. It's not even a wise way to invest your energy because if you're investing in things that are passing away, if you're investing in things that cannot last or cannot come through for you, do you really want to live that way? Therefore, out of love for you, I'm going to tell you, no other gods in the place that only I can fill. Because you're not meant to work like that. You'll never work well like that for a long period of time or forever. And so the whole idea of design, I know, again, I have, I have dear friends that talk to me about some of this. I know some people do not, in this room, you, you may not believe that God created the world. You may not yet believe that God created you. You may think, you know, that we just evolved or that something just happened by accident. But let me just challenge you for a second to say, if God did design and make you, then there are only certain ways you're going to be able to live according to that design. So let me just give you a couple examples. Let's say that you leave here today and you go home this afternoon and you sit on your couch and you watch TV. And behind you there, on the couch, you have a fish tank where there's a fish 
that you love very much sitting behind you, but he's watched for weeks how you sit on the couch and watch TV, and he, he doesn't like being left out. So he says to himself in the fish tank, I want to watch TV on the couch. So he figures out a way to flip himself out of the fish tank and onto the couch to watch TV. Let me just ask you, would he be free? No, he'd probably be dead. The point is, is that he may be able to enjoy TV for a little while. He may be able to pull that off. But will it work? No. Why? Because a fish is designed to live in what, friends? And a fish cannot be free outside of what it was designed to live in. And you and I can kick and scream and go, well, I don't think that's fair. Hey, it's just what is. Now, let me just say that you are a car. Think of yourself as a car for a second. And you say, you know, I am tired of unleaded fuel in my tank. I'm just tired of it. And you know what? From here on out, I'm going to live on salad dressing. I'm going to fill my tank with salad dressing. I like salad dressing better. Well, now picture yourself driving down the road. Will you be able to be the car you were designed to be? No. Now, let me ask you. You were designed to have God be the God alone of your heart. You and I were. And we can try other things. We can buck that. We can kick that and say, I don't like that. Or we can say, maybe God knows what he's talking about. Maybe the reason God's telling me this is because he loves me rather than he's trying to rip me off. And maybe I need to learn what it would look like to energetically give myself. You know, I love what Joy Davidman has said about this first commandment. She said, you know, if you look at it, the positive side of this command, instead of you shall have no other gods before me, is you shall have me. And I don't know if that sounds like bad news to you. Maybe you go, oh, bummer. Or you start to realize, hey, maybe I don't know God yet well enough to know that if I have him, I've got a life. And to get to know how to do everything with him, you shall have me. And I'll show you how to do life differently. Wow. And so how do we honor God's boundaries? Let me just try and bring this home. And before I do that, let me show you one more example from science, okay? I, I think most of you remember from science class that the earth revolves around the sun, right? And a lot of us sometimes, though, because we're standing here on planet earth, we think we're the center of the universe. So when we look out at the sun, we go, oh, the sun's revolving around us. But it's not true. And if we're not careful, we can begin to think that instead of us revolving around God, that it's more like this. That God revolves, and this is when it gets really bad right here, <laughs> is when I start to personalize it so much that I go, God, I expect you to revolve around me. You're here for my desire. You're here for what I think. You're, everything's like that, see? And so that's, he just knows how we're designed. So here's how we honor God's boundary lines. We can't be profoundly influenced by what we don't know. I've said it several times. I'll say it again. Friends, if you don't even have a cursory introduction to these, they can't really make an impact. They're not going to change your thinking. They're not going to change your decision-making until they become more a part of you. So how does that happen? 
That happens in simple ways. Let me just throw this out. If, if you read and repeat the first line of all 10, you know, what if you just started doing that? Maybe you keep this in your Bible and you pull it out several times this coming week. Maybe you put it on your bathroom mirror. Maybe you put it on your fridge. Maybe you put it in your car. Maybe, my wife, for instance, sometimes puts things in, her walk, in the walk-in closet. So while she's dressing, she's just able to think about that for a few minutes each day. I don't know what it would be for you. But what if you just began to read and repeat these words? And I've just found it, friends, to, to whisper it or say it out loud so I can hear it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if, what if I just go, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And you just began to hear that. What would happen? You see, you and I can't be influenced by what we don't know. And therefore, in this series, we get a chance to learn these, learn them, teach them, pray them if you're following along. We get a chance to learn them, to teach them, pray them, and to know God's heart, to know his heart. What if, what if, friends, so I love what they had in the video there where the parents said, we want this little guy to know the Ten Commandments. Who's going to teach your kids the Ten Commandments if you don't? You're going to let the church do all that? You know how much more powerful it is when you help teach them? You are more influential in your life than you can understand. Grandparents, parents, uncles, and aunts, we get the privilege of that. And yes, we are going to teach them in this church. They've already been going through them, by the way, in our youth group. What I'm just saying is, wow, we need it more than ever. And what if we pray them? What if we say, oh, God, God, I think I mean this when I pray this. Would you show me if there's any other gods in my life right now? And I'll try and, I'll try and pay attention to what you're showing me. But what if we did that? Because you and I can't be influenced by that which we don't know. I, this summer when I was traveling, I, I told you we were... We had lots of time in the car, so Trish and I listened to a book about Americans in Paris. And they talked about how these American students would go to Paris to learn about surgery because they wanted to come back to the United States and have greater knowledge. And at that time, Paris was ahead of many places. And so they went, and what they discovered is these people knew tons about surgery. It's just that about 80 or 90% of the people, once they got done with surgery, died. So you go, I don't know if I want to learn how to do surgery that way. When they, just, they didn't discover for several more years why people were dying, even though they did the surgery right. They realized that there were germs that unless you washed your hands and washed your, washed your instruments, you were putting germs into people that would kill them. And they, were, they, they couldn't be influenced by what they didn't know yet. Once they began to learn that, friends, surgery has become a lot more safe by a mile because what they know. And the, the, the same is true with you and me. We can go to a different place if we learn these things and get, let God make us wise. So here's how you and I can honor God's boundary lines for number one. Here's the sentence. It's gonna, here's what it's going to mean, and you may gulp, but it means to abandon all other gods and serve the Lord God alone. To abandon all other gods and serve the Lord your God alone. If you and I will spend time in the Ten Commandments, we'll begin to catch God's heart for us. And we'll begin to believe his wisdom that says, these other gods are not what they promised to be. I am not wise putting this in the position that only God can be in in my life. God, please show me. I am willing to renounce, to be done with, to forsake, to put on the altar, whatever other gods you show me that I am misappropriating in my life. 
show me, and I will do business with it in order to honor not only what you say, but to live in the promise of being able to serve you energetically. Do you know that some of the most miserable people are in churches? Because they've come to trust Jesus Christ, but they have decided that they're going to still live with other gods. And now they're in conflict. Do you realize that once you and I try and serve two gods, at best we're half-hearted? At best. There's just something saps life away from us. And so God wants us to be people that realize the power of this promise. Now there's several stories I could tell you. One is of a rich young ruler that once came to Jesus in Mark 10. And when he came to Jesus, he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he fell at his feet. He was in earnest. And he said, What do I do? And Jesus immediately, here's an interesting approach. He didn't just go straight to the answer. He says, What are the commandments? He meant the Ten Commandments. And so he, he names, he says, Well, what commandments do you mean? And so he names from the second tablet, Honor your father and mother. He went through all those. And the rich young ruler said, look, Lord, all these I have done since I was a boy. And Jesus didn't go, yeah, right. He looked at him, the Bible says, and loved him. Jesus loves people. And he said, well, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. You notice what tablet he's talking about? First tablet. And when he talked about that, the Bible says the guy went away sad because his God was what? His wealth. Doesn't mean that wealth always has to be a God. It's just that Jesus pinpointed what his was. You know that Abraham was given Isaac. We studied this in the Galatians series. What a gift. He was the promise. He was his future, not just Abraham's future, but the future even for us. And with Isaac, one day in Genesis 22, God asked Isaac, take him up to a mountain and place him on an altar and give him back to God. And that's a moment of truth. And Abraham, it says, got up early the next day and he went to do that. And before he was able to sacrifice his son, God said, stop, Abraham, Abraham. Now I know that you love me more than you love your son. And he gave Isaac back to him and he provided a ram in the thicket. Here's the question. Was Abraham more free to love his son better after that or less? More. You see, when things are in the proper perspective, we love better, not less. But when we get them flipped, then if they get taken away from us, we can easily become bitter or we can misunderstand what life's about. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said to Nebuchadnezzar, Know, O king, that we believe God will deliver us if we don't bow down to your gods. But even if he does not, we will not serve your gods. Do with us whatever you need to do. They threw him into the fire. Were they more free or less free that day? They were more free. See, there was nothing keeping them from living life on the edge. And they discovered that day not only that God was able to do things they never knew before, but they also were able to introduce Nebuchadnezzar to a God that was greater than his gods. And the only way you and I are going to have a witness in this world is if we honor God alone. So the question as we come to the end of this message is this. If we want to put number one into practice, what or who will I give the supreme place and put in the box? What or who will I give the supreme place and put in the box 
Elijah once stood on the mountain and said to people, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But make up your mind. You cannot follow both gods like you're doing. It's not going to work. And therefore, what I want to do is ask you to turn your notes over to the back. I know some of you may have put them away. Sorry about that. But if you turn your notes over to the back, do you see that box there? I want to talk to you about that box, but I want to read to you a story that I read years ago. I've never forgotten, and we'll come back to it. This story was told by Bill Hybels. I've never forgotten it. He says, a friend of mine had been afflicted with a severe case of affluence, so much so that success panic set in. He really didn't know what to do with it all and what to do with his future. Some of us would like to be afflicted that way. So some time ago, he paid thousands of dollars to hire a life planning expert from New York, as I recall, to fly to his home and to help him figure out what he was going to do with the next 20 or so years of his life. So the life planner interviewed my friend and his wife for quite some time, and after all the interviewing was done, he set up a flip chart in the man's living room, and he drew a large box on the top center part of this white page flip chart. And then he said, after interviewing the two of you, as I have done, I have to ask you to tell me one thing before we get started practically about planning out the next 20 years of your life. He said, I heard you talk a lot about your business, and I also heard you talk a lot about your faith. And before I can go any further in charting a course for your future, you two have to tell me what I have to put in this box that I have drawn at the top of this white sheet. He said, whenever I do life planning, I have to start with the client's highest value. I've got to determine the most important value in his or her life because the goals and the plans and the strategy for the future will all flow out of that highest value. So the consultant said to my friend, what shall I put in the box of your life? What's your highest value? He said, if you want me to write money in the box, then we'll plan a strategy to do whatever it takes in the next 20 years for you to acquire as much of it as possible. He said, we'll make sure your life and your goals revolve around the acquisition of that highest value. And I can do that for you, he said. I do it all the time. He said, if you want me to write God in that box, then I'll go another way and we'll plan a strategy that will bring glory and honor and pleasure and worship to God for the next 20 or so years of your life. We'll just make sure that everything in your life revolves around that highest value. But you've got to have something in the box or I can't help you plan your life. My friend told me, he gulped and he understood Matthew 6.24 from this unbeliever better than he ever had before in his life. He said, because Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. There's only room for one in the box. You'll either hate the one and love the other, hold on to the one and despise the other, but you cannot have both in the box. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, you've got to choose. Because it affects everything. It affects your decisions. It affects your strategies. And all of it will flow out of the highest value in your life. Your life is going to revolve around whatever you have in the box. After some reflection, my friend said he took a deep breath and he said, write God in big letters in the box. <coughs> and the planner did. And they did their work for the next few days. And I can say that my friend has been diligently attempting to the best of his ability to center his life around the glory and the pleasure and the kingdom of God. My friend was also was considered nuts by all his business associates because the whole course of his life changed and his net worth changed and this descending stairwell into greatness came into focus for him and everyone else thought he was nuts and most of them still think that. 
Well, my question to you is, what would you say if a life planner came to your house this weekend, interviewed you, and then put out a flip chart and said, here's the box? What would you tell him to put in the box, really? Comfort, fame, pleasure, money, another person, or God? What would you have the guy write in the box? And I can't answer that for you. I don't know if it's another God or if it's God alone. But what the first commandment is saying and what Jesus said when he says you cannot serve two masters is that if you don't know it already, I guess I'm out of ink here, if you don't know it already, well, I'll try another one. If you don't know it already, that box stands for your heart. Because whatever is first in our hearts, everything we do will flow out of that. It will. It will. So pray with me now. Just bow your head. Do you have the courage to say, God, what's in the box for me? What have I been putting in the box? How do I understand how to do that differently so I can honor you alone? Would you pray with him and just talk with him and ask him to show you where you are? I want to pray with you. Oh God, this week you've been showing me ways that I need to address things that have been vying for my heart. Things that can easily become gods in my life instead of you. Help me, Lord, to see your wisdom and your care for me and to respond to you. I want to pray for those that are here that are already followers of you that if there is something that has begun to grab their heart instead of you, I pray that they would know it, not so it would destroy them, but so they could do something about it, that you'll show us how to take responsibility and move towards you and be able to do life more energetically with you. I want to pray for those that are here. We're so glad they're here.
that have not yet trusted in you and are afraid that if they do, they'll lose more than they gain. I pray they'll come to understand that you love them so much and wanted so much for them to know life according to the design you made them, that you sacrificed your one and only son, that if they would trust in him, they would be able to know him living in their lives. We pray that this day, though they may be far from you, they will call on the name of the Lord and experience your amazing salvation. So help us, O oh God. Help us as we walk out of here not to play games with ourselves or kid ourselves or lie to you. Help us to walk before you energetically all the way to the edges. In Jesus' name, amen.